You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 2, Episode 5. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you from the beautiful, wintry province of Alberta. Boy, I think I should add snowy on there. We have had just a huge dump of snow this last stretch here, and I woke up this morning and had to spend uh, a couple extra minutes getting all the snow off of my vehicle before uh, before I could drive away. And uh, I won't even get started. Don't even get me started with the shoveling and clearing this, the sidewalk and our, our driveway of, of the snow. But you know what? I love living in Alberta. I love living in Lethbridge in particular in southern Alberta because our lovely Chinook wind blows in when it decides to come around and melts all the snow. Unlike my compadres up in northern Alberta and Edmonton and north where it seems like when it snows, it sticks around forever. Anyways, beautiful wintry wonderland. That's where I'm living uh, right now. And um, we have a great podcast for you today. Uh, This one is a little bit different. It's kind of a special episode, similar to the one I did with Betsy Kane after the U.S. presidential election when we talked about all of the ways that our U.S. uh, our neighbors to the south could immigrate to Canada. Well, with everything that is going on, with all of these executive orders, if you've been following the newspapers, um, that that uh, President Trump has been uh, putting his pen to over the last stretch here, I think 22 and counting, I think was the last total, um, some of them affect immigration. And it affects uh, U.S. immigration policy. And you can't help but notice what's been happening over the last few uh, weeks and um and so what I had, what I thought is I've got to get someone on to come and talk about this. So I invited um, Heather Siegel to join me. And, and Heather, uh, you'll find out a little bit more here as we get to the interview. But she's both a Canadian and U.S. immigration lawyer. And so she has some unique perspectives that she shares on everything that's happening in the U.S. And uh, provides us with a little bit of insight and a little bit of a prognostication, I guess, if you will, uh, about how the changes in the U.S., both from a policy standpoint and and an actual, um, uh, you know, the 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 way immigration unfolds in the in the future in the U.S., how that is going to impact on Canada. So uh, any of you that that have been following this will find this interview extremely interesting. Um, uh, Heather did did just a fantastic job, and she was so gracious with her time, as all of my guests are. So uh, without further ado, let's jump to that interview with Heather Siegel. Well, welcome to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, uh, Heather Siegel. Thank you. Heather is uh, a founder of Siegel Immigration Law in Toronto, and she practices both sides of the border. So she practices both Canadian Immigration Law and American Consular and Border Immigration Law. So it's great to have someone with that dual perspective to touch on a topic that is quite timely. 
And uh, today we're recording this actually on February the 6th and I'm hoping to get it out right away because we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening south of the border with, um, with the new U.S. President Donald Trump and some of these executive orders that he uh, has um, uh, furiously put his pen to over the last little while. So um, yeah, we're grateful to have Heather join us to talk about that. Thank you. Yes. Well, nothing's happening south of the border. It's all very calm and wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) You know, as Canadian immigration lawyers, we're so used to the change that occurred as the conservatives basically revamped the entire immigration system. And it's going to be very interesting to see as that same type of phenomenon looks like it's going to be happening south of the border here. Well, it's been... um very interesting times and uh, I think that Trump has definitely a vision with respect to how he thinks things should unfold and what he wants his relationship to the world will to be and um, it's it's a little bit um, not a little bit it's radically different from what's what's gone before um, coming into office and 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 what's really become very apparent just as a, as a U.S. immigration lawyer is how little he understands about the U.S. immigration system itself that he's got a very superficial understanding and that to yep. come in and make an executive order and thinking that okay now we're good next without understanding the ramifications and impact is is scary surprising scary mm-hmm. I think is a, is one possible way of describing it Now, before we jump into this topic, I I want to just give our listeners a little bit of background um, on you. Now, you've been practicing for, you've indicated almost 25 years, I think, and a long period of time here. Close to. Yeah, and uh, recently um, opened your your own immigration law firm, Siegel Immigration Law Firm. And uh, over the number, you know, the past number of years, I've always wanted to get people on the podcast that give back. And uh, you have been heavily involved uh, in the American Immigration Lawyer Association and uh, over really the past decade as a director on the board um, of AILA, and, uh, which is uh, similar to our Canadian Bar Association, our immigration section. And you are currently uh, sitting as a member of uh, the AILA Customs and Border Protection National Liaison Committee. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So um, AILA is the largest uh, immigration organization, I think, in the United States with a building in Washington and ties. um, They have an advocacy section. They have a relationship where they speak to members of the White House, are involved um, with the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of State, where they regularly liaise with people from those agencies and um, are have their hand on the pulse when it comes to U.S. immigration and are used both as a a think tank and a knowledge base for government when necessary and an advocacy base for immigrants um, and have been absolutely instrumental with everything that's transpired um, over the last two weeks, week and a half with um, the executive order. Um, I've been involved with them for over 20 years and, um, and one of my volunteer positions right now is liaising with Customs and Border Protection in Washington, um, which has been very, very interesting. Um, and and actually, it's been really wonderful because you actually get to see a, a human side to the people who are being uh, put in a position to carry out orders. With. Whether they agree with them or not, that is, you know, their, their, their responsibility as, um, as employees of the Department of Homeland Security. And you make a good point there because 
you know, very often, whether it's Canadian officers or U.S. officers um, or, you know, government officials, you have to apply the law that is in place, whether you agree with it or not. And I think of times on the border where an individual had a criminal record and maybe it happened a long time ago. And, um, you know, my experience working, I had individuals who were just transiting through to Alaska for work. And I had to tell them, well, unfortunately, because of this serious criminality that occurred 30, 35 years ago, I can't let you through. And you're going to have to go back and apply for rehabilitation. And I'm sorry if this might affect your employment. You know, but then you think about all of these changes that are being, uh, you know, uh, enacted through these executive orders and the consequences that it has on people. As an officer who is being forced to implement this, I can imagine how difficult it would be. So there's obviously two sides to every story. And sometimes us as immigration lawyers and attorneys, we tend to look at things from our perspective and the perspective of our clients uh, and somewhat in a vacuum sometimes. But we always have to be considerate of the fact that you know, the officers are doing their job. They're doing what they've been instructed to do. And, uh, you know, and sometimes they have to make tough decisions that impact people and families negatively because it's their job. So thanks. That's a great, a great point. All right. So one of the questions, Heather, that I ask every single guest that comes on my podcast, and I know that it's kind of fun to, to learn a little bit more about people's um, paths that led them to immigration, but how did you uh, focus on immigration. How did you end up in this area? So before I went to law school, I went to Asia and I traveled around Wonderful. and uh, I was in yeah various countries and saw people from all over. And I thought that is very interesting. When I got to law school, I wasn't overly engaged by it because of where I had just spent almost a year. And, um, and I did Decided that this area that was most interesting was refugees, and um, focused primarily on that. And I had articled with Barbara Jackman—not article, sorry—I had summered with Barbara Jackman and summered with Lauren Waldman on two separate summers, and um, really was very engaged by that. And 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 when I finished law school, I thought, you know, I'm I'm not ready to go work, and I and I went to uh, I applied to. Uh, the University of California at Berkeley, and I ended up doing a master's of law in Berkeley on um, and focusing on immigration. And my area was on environmental refugees and people who became displaced as a result of um, environmental degradation, climate change, and, hmm. um, desertification. And so, of course, all the things we're talking about now, which was very interesting, examining international human rights law, uh, refugee law, environmental law, and looking at what, what could be done. And then the result was, this is not a lot can be done because this is how the global society has decided they want things to be <laughs> based uh. on the economics. And then I um, ended up at the Hague Academy and I did a, a symposium there with um, a bunch of scholars on um, environmental refugees and disasters and how the world will deal with such matters. Um, and then I went back to California and I, I got licensed out there and I started working and I felt that it was very difficult to work with refugees. Um, and it was very psychologically taxing and I thought I, I need maybe another area. And I, I ended up in corporate immigration law with more work permit type stuff and uh, really enjoyed that. And then after living there for a couple of years, I decided I, I really wanted to come back to Canada. I preferred Canada. And so I moved back to Canada and got licensed here. And the rest is history. There you go. Awesome. <laughs> Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. All right. Well, it's interesting just how everyone has a different path that leads us to immigration. And uh, you definitely had 
um, quite the background for the area. And I agree, you know, I, I don't do a lot of refugee law and I focus primarily on business immigration for the bulk of my, you know, 14, 15 year practice. And, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult when you, you have these people who genuinely need assistance. And I just met with someone this morning who has family members that are in a refugee camp in Uganda and are, she's, you know, she's got younger siblings and her mother's struggling with taking care of them. And, uh, they, they just don't have a, a quick pathway to get here to Canada. And, uh, it was really depressing having to tell her, well, you know, if your mother wasn't alive then, um, and your siblings were orphans, then they would, meet the definition of, of a, an applicant under the family class and you could sponsor them, but that's not the case. And, uh, otherwise you, you know, you'll, you'll have to, to wait and see what comes up with your, you know, through the UNHCR, you know, and, and the, the refugee process. And, um, and, you know, and then usually for me, I end up feeling bad and, and don't charge them for the the consult. And then at the end of the month, I'm, I'm looking at my bottom line thinking, Hmm, I do have to feed my own family. So uh, there's that. Yeah. Yeah. That detail. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely uh, immigration can be um, just an absolutely wonderfully rewarding area to practice in. And as you indicated, it has its moments where it can be pretty depressing as well. Well, let's move on for our listeners to the topic, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, this is all of these series of executive orders that President Trump has been uh, signing off over the last little while here. And I thought we would hone in on, on the, the, uh, the impact that some of these executive orders is having on immigration, U.S. immigration. But to some extent, it touches on us and our world here in Canada as well. And we'll maybe get a little bit to that, um, that as well. But it's interesting. I was doing a little bit of research when we, before I got on the call with you. And I noticed that over the full two terms of, of Obama's administration, he issued 277 executive orders. And I haven't done a recent count, but uh, last I saw, Trump was at about 22. Now, is that is that increased? Uh, I think that was as of February oh. the 30. He was at 22 that he had signed in, in you know, just, I guess, uh, one month of, of his tenure. Maybe you can talk wonder, a little bit about that. Yeah, I wonder if he thinks that's how laws get passed in the United States. So this is what he's doing. It was his basic, you know, schoolhouse rock beginning way of understanding the United States structure. I don't know. I mean, he, he certainly has the authority to make um, an executive order under the Constitution. And of course, whatever orders come down, the courts being another uh, branch of government have the authority to review it and determine whether or not the order is constitutional and can strike it down. He can amend a new, and make a new order that is more in line with the Constitution if that happens. Um, I mean, there's several ways for, for orders to get passed. But the interesting thing is, is um, where is this coming from and why is this happening? And I think to give it some kind of context, I think it's important to understand how the United States relates to immigration and what their background um, is relative to Canada. I mean, the United States has 330 million people. They do not have socialized medicine like Canada. They don't even have a subsidized um, post-secondary educational system. So they do not see immigration as a vehicle for bringing money into the country to support their structures and their systems as compared to Canada, which has about 33 million people. We need people. We do have socialized medicine. We do have a a subsidized uh, post-secondary education. We're a much more socialized country. And so our only future 
growth, aside from, you know, natural growth, is through immigration. And, and that policy is well understood by the Canadian government. And it is such a divergent perspective than the U.S. is, which has 10 times our size of, um, of uh, population. And um, it's, it's, we also don't have a southern border which has an influx of people coming in who are poorer than a lot of the people, but not all of the people in the population, and who um, the, the United States has always felt threatened by. And so because their policies and perspectives are different than Canada and because they've always felt like immigration has been a problem for their country by virtue of so many people are able to get in illegally, um, they, they have uh, – there's a very large segment of the population that does not want to facilitate immigration and in fact has a very anti-immigrant sentiment. The fact of the matter is there's a lot of evidence to support the fact that, you know, people who come as immigrants do support the country, pay taxes, um, are contributing in a very positive way, um, and their second generation offspring end up being incredibly successful citizens. So, um, but that is not information that is widely touted through the anti-immigrant sentiment in the United States. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, when, 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 um, Trump got into power, the the, pers- the way um, U.S. immigration is structured is there's two main bodies who deal with U.S. immigration. One is the Department of Homeland Security, and one is the Department of State. And of course, the Department of State is responsible for issuing visas through consulates and embassies, and those are just entry documents. But the Department of Homeland Security was created post-9-11 by Bush, and he created 22 federal agencies, three of which fall under relate to immigration. Customs and Border Protection are all the folks you see at the border. Citizenship and Immigration Services are the people you make applications to inland for any kind of benefit, for work permits, for naturalization, for permanent residence. And then there's um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is the deportation branch. So what, what happened when Bush came into power is he amalgamated customs and immigration. And customs and immigration were two huge bureaucracies within the government. It's sort of like mixing Service Canada and Revenue Canada, just completely different and ways of functioning. And it was a very um, difficult time because people who were in um, each of those agencies were not used to their, their bureaucracies, were not used to their hierarchies, and it took a long time for them to amalgamate and function smoothly. And now now they do. Um, so the Department of Homeland Security tends to be much more enforcement-minded, seeing as they have an enforcement branch. Um, and the Department of State is much more oriented towards facilitation and bringing people into the country because um, they are located throughout the world and so are much more engaged with the rest of the world. So even those two entities have very different perspectives on immigration. And all of this impacts the way in which immigration gets carried out. And, you know, I can, I can see some similarities, you know, between the systems, even, even though from a, a philosophical and policy standpoint, our current governments look like they're going in different directions. You know, the concept of ministerial instructions, which was instituted to help with more efficient <laughs> decision-making uh, with the creation of programs and things like that within our immigration um, 
world. And, uh, you know, the, I guess to some extent, a little bit, these executive orders that are, that are being used to, to make radical changes in, in a very expedited fashion. Well, that's, that's, I mean, that's an interesting comparison. And there is a lot of discretion in Canadian immigration that is even arguably not even easily checked in the same way as it is with the U.S. government, except this particular executive order. And when I say this, I'm talking about the one that was um, preventing people from one of those seven countries to come into the United States was such a radical departure from the position that the U.S. has held in relationship to the rest of the world in the last 70 years. I mean, the United States has always been viewed as a leader of the free world. And when you start to bar people on account of nationality, you're, it's a radical departure from that position of facilitating a free world, open, democratic perspective. I don't think there's been a country since since uh, World War II in, in Nazi Germany that has prevented permanent residents from coming back in if they leave. Um, I mean, maybe Russia and China, but you know, this is not what we talk about when we talk about the United States. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the fact that permanent residents were in fear of having to if they left the country that they couldn't get back in um, is also bizarre that they, they were became prisoners in their own country. Uh, and there's many people who may have not been born in the United States, but came as children and grew up there and lived there their whole lives and are just like every other American who's was born there. And those people became prisoners in their own country. They couldn't leave. And that is very much like China and Russia. You can't leave yes. easily. And so, um, so that's that's a very big difference, I suppose, from our ministerial instructions, <laughs> the, yes. the substance, yes. But, um, I mean, just last week, as we know, or just this last weekend, now there's a court order from Seattle that has now um, made a restraining order, a stay of these um, – of this order, and now everybody is admissible into the United States, um, unless the courts say otherwise. And of course, Trump tried to appeal that and say, "Let's let the de facto status be that they're not allowed in until the decision gets made." And the Ninth Circuit said, "No, we're going to let them in, and we're going to keep that the de facto situation. Let everybody in, and uh, you know, in a week when we hear oral and written arguments, then we'll make a decision with respect to." Uh, how to proceed and what's going to happen. So uh, from a practical standpoint, can you give us a little bit of history on this? So, so what happened to people when this, when this executive order was signed? Now, I, I don't know if there was any advance warning or anything like that, but can you share a little bit of insight? And I know lots of us have read the, the papers and we've been mm -hmm. trying to follow that spin on it. But in practical terms, what was the consequence of, of that um, executive order being signed in the immediate aftermath? Well, that's that's really interesting. I, and that's the part of the that's the part of the whole story that I think Trump didn't understand. And that's why I said at the beginning, I don't think he understands the U.S. immigration because it, it became chaotic. And, you know, I happen to think that he's a president who likes a lot of chaos around him. And, and it was facilitates control on his part, but it became chaotic because there wasn't a lot of advance notice. I mean, he claims that, that the people who needed to know did know. I don't think they did know um, in talking to the people at lower levels of government. I don't think they had any instructions and didn't know how to carry out um, the order and what it would look like. So um, 
the first example that I was giving, which is about the permanent residents, it was unthinkable that you couldn't let a permanent resident back in. Nobody would have understood that. And so there was questions and there was inconsistencies across the board in every port of entry as to whether or not permanent residents should be let back in. Airports were not doing the same things as land ports of entry. And there wasn't even consistency you know, across the board for airports themselves. And then there was the whole thing, if you were a dual national of the UK or dual national of Canada and a permanent resident, would you let be let back in? If you were a Iranian or Libyan Canadian national, would you be let back in? And and there was no consistency. Right. I, I had heard some stories about, yeah, in dual, dual nationals of, of, uh, of those seven prohibited countries that were detained and, and ran into issues because the officers on the ground really didn't understand what was happening. And so they just <laughs> were imposing their own, That's exactly their own it. views on how it should be um, interpreted. And, you know, when you look, and I, and I like to compare it to the Canadian side as well. When you think of all of the changes that have occurred across our immigration uh, program, those very rarely get filtered down properly to our, um, our, 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 our Canada Border Service Agent officers. So those BSOs, those border service officers, often, you know, we're having to educate them when there's been a change because they they just don't receive the training. They don't receive the information. And so for for President Trump to say that everybody who needed to know knew in advance, obviously that's that's a little bit of an overstatement. That's true. That's absolutely true. And the Canadians, um, there, there is sometimes a bit of confusion when new when new orders come down or new instructions or policy guidelines. But People know that it happened and they ask questions and there is an, an uh, availability to be responsive. And initially there wasn't that availability. It was just, nope, can't do it. Nope, that's it. Just say no. And it was a very draconian position relative to, I think, what dem- democracies are used to. I mean, you can compare it to Canada and you can even compare it to the United St- States itself, that usually there's a lot more notice and they're used to um, having some kind of um, – explanation. So when everybody knows things have changed, we understand it's a little bit confusing and then we all try and work together. I often feel yes. the Canadians will work with you to figure it out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um but but one one upshot of this of this when I say this, I mean the um executive order and the and the message to the people at the border. I think um there, there's a there's a fallout. And what happens is, and we saw this with Bush back whenever he came to power and he was amending things. And the message from Washington was, we're not interested in immigration. We want to limit it. We don't want everybody here. And so what happens often is that the people at Customs and Border Protection, um, not everybody, but some officers take that as a sign that they can say no arbitrarily. They can say no um, and, and find a reason and, and, and start to create rationale for not letting people in that is not based on anything and not based including on any executive order or related to an executive order. Um, there were stories of, of Americans who were also Iranian or one of the seven nationals yeah. who were detained. Yeah. Um, that, that wasn't allowed. That's absolutely not mentioned at all. Yeah. Uh, there, there's um, people who were not one of those seven countries who were being stopped and denied that had no security issues, but they, the Customs and Border Protection felt that the message was, we are looking out for security, and which yes. they always have to do. And yep. under those auspices, they can take a wide net 
And that's where traveling into the United States can get trickier because um, you don't always know what to expect from officers who may or may not be behaving consistently with what's within their purview. Wow. So what is the current, as of February the 6th, what is the current state of the land here? What is the, what's the lay of the land? Well, as of February 6th, everybody can enter the United States as long as they have a valid, well, I should say, even that's a caveat. <laughs> I was going to say a valid visa, but there are some places where if your visa has been canceled because the government canceled, the Department of State canceled everybody's visas, permanent oh. and temporary visas, oh. if they were from one of those seven countries. Now, people, to provisionally do that, you won't get any mark in your passport. It doesn't suddenly appear. So for most people, it won't mean anything. But if immigration, when one of those uh, people tried to enter the country from one of those countries, canceled it physically, then arguably they have to go back to the consulate and, and get reapply. a new oh, visa. Yes. Now, I've heard reports that government, um, that's Customs and Border Protection, is honoring these if they were canceled during that time period for that reason. But um, I don't know if yeah, everybody it's the will discretion do that of every. Yep, yeah, it's up to the discretion of whichever officer you're in front of. Right. And similarly, Nexus cards were canceled for all of yes. those nationalities. Wow. And those, although the order from Seattle, from the federal court in Seattle said all visas have to be reinstated, everything has to be reinstated. It didn't necessarily speak to the mm -hmm. Nexus cards. So there's a question about whether those were in fact required to be reinstated. And there's an argument that people will have to reapply for those um, if they if they've theirs were cancelled. So wow. Wow. I'll talk about make work. Oh, unbelievable. So during this time period, um I know there were, because of the confusion, uh, one of the things that, at least within our Canadian Bar Association, I know um, there was an initiative that, you know, to help people that were going through the, the pre-flight screening areas at some of the airports across the country. Can you speak a little bit to that? So that's really where I would say the bar has really shown its strength on both sides of the border, that lawyers have stepped up in a way that you don't really know whether or not that's going to happen until it happens. And people have been working at airports around the clock um, from the moment this happened on January 27th um, up until the present to try and help as much as possible, whether it's to, I mean, one story I heard is in Seattle where a bunch of lawyers from AILA had shown up to argue uh, to get identify who was being detained and prevent them from being detained. And the um, police were saying, you're, you're obstructing justice, you're, you're, so we're going to arrest you. So all the criminal defense lawyers showed up at the airport and started saying, uh, no, you can't, and started defending the immigration wow. lawyer. So, yeah, it's been really crazy that way um and so everybody's showing up and trying to protect um trying to get information sharing briefs uh facilitating filing in courts um creating lists of people who are being detained and who had um who were impeded from entry um getting in touch with airlines and making sure airlines were clear on what the rules are and that they weren't arbitrarily enforcing yes. u.s immigration policy wrongly so it's been an, an amazing effort, and, and it, I mean, it makes me proud to be part of AILA, and, and even as a Canadian um, Bar Association member, I mean, we have been, I, I have been walking around saying the two most important professions right now are the lawyers and the journalists, and that it's incumbent upon us to be 
proactive and vociferous about what we're seeing and identifying it and speaking out so messages get out so we maintain democracy because that's what's at risk when yeah, when yeah respecting the rule of law and everything exactly you know it's interesting um i'm sure you've experienced the same thing that i have but i've had friends and colleagues here in lethbridge alberta that have reached out to me and said hey how can i help is there anything that i can do um you know i i've followed this and i'm i just want to be you know, of assistance in any way I can. And, you know, for the most part at this stage, uh, you know, I, I tell people, well, let's, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see how things unfold. There isn't really too much that we can do right now, but um, it's interesting because there's definitely been this groundswell of, of support, um, you know, to, uh, as a result of everything that's happened. Well, yeah, I think the only thing people can do right now is get the message out to as widely as possible that while this stay is on, everybody is eligible to come into yeah, the United States. And so people should get everybody back if they need to. I mean, I know the tech companies, Google, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Apple were calling people back because they wanted to make sure their employees would be able to return should they need to. So um Getting people back into the United States is really is really important right now. And then, of course, you know, until the next thing happens, which should be, uh, you know, at least a week from now, if not a little bit longer to decide how things and whether whether Bush, uh, Bush, (laughs) Trump comes out with another executive order post post uh, government uh, court decision. We'll see. Appeal Mm. decision. Interesting. So, you know, I'll go ahead. Sorry. No, I said it's not Dell. Yeah, yeah, no, not at all. And, you know, this is actually, you know, when you mentioned Microsoft and some of these other, you know, Amazon, these other companies, whatever, um, this is a really nice segue into another, uh, I guess, another topic of of sorts, another subtopic within our conversation here. We know that, you know, that Trump's not just limiting (laughs) these executive orders or his, his, his vision for the future to you know, combating terrorism. And you kind of hinted a little bit at this within the the Bush administration, that they're also looking at other immigration programs and restricting them. And so I think instantly of the H-1Bs, the L's, which, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that, even NAFTA, which we've heard that Trump's looking to revisit these or examine them and take a look at if they're really in the best interests of, of, you know, of, of the U.S. and its citizens. And, um, can you give a little bit of thought? Maybe we'll start with, you know, the H's and the L's, because uh, I know that's a little bit on the, the radar with the tech companies and, and what the impact might be for Canada as a result of potential future decisions made. So, yeah, starting with the H's, there is a bill that's been introduced um, to Congress, the Highly Skilled Integrity and Fairness Act of 2017, which is basically an overhauling or revamping of the H-1B program. And um, it's it's an interesting, actually, it's a very interesting bill. Maybe you could just explain what an H-1B is here with our oh, acronyms. Yeah, there's that. So all of U.S. immigration is done by letters of the alphabet for entry into the United States, whether it's a business visitor, which is a B1, a business for pleasure, sorry, entry for pleasure, which is a B2. And so an H is anyone who's coming into the country who's a um, specialty occupation. And specialty occupation is defined as usually requiring a degree or its equivalent to do the job. So it's a professional job. And uh, there's 65,000 of them allocated every year. And they run out every single year. It's highly 
used. It's oversubscribed to by the high-tech sector. Um, a lot of people from overseas who do not qualify for intercompany transfers or any of the other types of visas use the H-1B. And it's uh, done by lottery and the start date for applying is April 1st and you can actually physically enter um, October 1st, which is the fiscal year, uh, the beginning of the fiscal year for immigration. But um, within 24 hours or less, all those 65,000 visas are gone. I mean, they're, the work permits, they're completely um, spoken for. Uh, so it's always tricky. And, and there's all sorts of things, games people play to try and increase their odds and try and get them approved. And it's, it's not a good program to um, support a tech sector that's growing and that, right. you know, center of the world. Yes. <laughs> um, so I anticipate that it will change. It's very hard to say how it will change or whether the bill that was introduced will be exactly the bill that, that occurs. And I mean, there's things like they're going to increase the amount of wages that will have to be paid um, by 35% above the median wage. So um, they'll have to pay them. If, it's very complicated and it's huh. all... But anyway, the bottom line is... It will change. I believe it will change. And I think that the H-1Bs should be expanded. I think they should be more facilitative. And there are aspects of this that are facilitative. So it'll be very interesting to see how it all comes down. But I don't think a lot of Canadians use the H-1B because we have NAFTA, as you said, um, and then and the intercompany transfer as well, which is part of NAFTA. So as a Canadian immigration lawyer then with, you know, who practices business immigration, can we expect that as the, I guess, the belt is tightened in the U.S. on these H-1Bs, especially the impact it has on the tech industry, that some of these companies may consider, you know, moving to Canada, some of their operations uh, to benefit from possibly more favorable immigration provisions? That may happen. I mean, look what happened with Microsoft a few years ago yes. in Vancouver from Seattle. Um, that's, there's very much a possibility that it could happen. Um, and I mean, Canada is much more facilitative. Um, and, and, and part of what the next stage um, that's being discussed is um, site visits for um, companies that accept L1s, which are intercompany transfers. And similar to Canada, the, L, the intercompany transfer doesn't just exist in NAFTA. They, they also have a, one for the general population for all countries. So um, if come tech companies, which also use this um, avenue to bring people in start to feel like they're being crunched by virtue of potential enforcement actions and investigations and they may say you know we don't want to deal with this which is what you just said and and yeah canada would look like a wonderful option and opportunity and i think canada would be much more facilitative of this type of immigration hmm. uh, so and then the second thing they're going to do is they are going to start to look at all of the work permit regulations that exist and examine whether or not they're beneficial to the United States or not. And if they're not, they're going to amend them so that they will be beneficial, huh. whatever all of that means. <laughs> so, okay. So clearly there's going to be somewhat of a house cleaning that's going to be going on um, as, as a new set of, a new paradigm, you know, is, is, <laughs> is, is imposed or applied to, to the U.S. immigration policy going forward. Um, what about NAFTA? 
you know, we've heard that's one that's been on the radar for sure. And we've heard a lot about it. And, you know, prior to, to, um, you know, starting our recording, I talked a little bit about how some of my clients have, have expressed concern and want to extend their, their, their NAFTA professional work permits now in case something happens. And, uh, what are your thoughts on that? So, I do think NAFTA will be re-examined and it may become a bilateral agreement. I think that's his goal. Um, but his his desire to revamp NAFTA I don't think was ever directed towards Canada. I always think it was directed towards Mexico and the his sense of unfairness or capitalizing on some sense of unfairness that existed in the country with respect to the um, dis- disparity between the, the two countries and their trade and how it's not fair to the United States. I don't think he thinks... Trump thinks of Canada as on a different playing field. So I think he will be much more – I don't think that's what he's looking to claw back on NAFTA. I mean he was the one who just signed the executive order on the Keystone Pipeline. I'm not sure who exactly he thinks is going to build the pipeline, but you can't have Americans only build the pipeline in the United States and Canadians only do it in Canada. You do need to go back and forth. You do need to work in each other's countries. You can't do it without doing without that kind of uh, ability to move. And so you know, if he wants – those kinds of projects to occur, bilateral projects, he's going to have to facilitate them somehow. So I'm not overly worried about a big clawback on the Canadian-U.S. facets of immigration in NAFTA. Hmm. That makes perfect sense to me. It really does. It's hard to fathom, you know, and you hit on one thing that was really important, how these executive (laughs) orders are kind of, you know, they're made without a real you know, any type of depth of understanding of, of, of why immigration is, is the way it is. And, and so when you think about that, you know, okay, this, this fear mongering that's going on that, you know, NAFTA, the work permits are going to be canceled. And so no U S you know, no Canadians can go down and work in the U S. Um, but obviously when I think of how many Americans are up here in Canada working under those programs, clearly that has to come into, into play at some point in time where, they realize, yeah. hey, that's not such a good idea to all of our U.S. companies who, you know, when Canada was booming and things were, you know, slower in the U.S., I, I think of all the companies that I act for that, you know, were able to secure contracts and, you know, everything from infrastructure developments to healthcare, hospital building, you know, engineers, architects, all of these individuals who benefited substantially from, uh, you know, from the good times in Canada, although they're kind of a little bit slower now, our economy slowed down a bit, but just... You know, there were there were just tons and tons of NAFTA professional work permits that were issued to facilitate this cross-border work. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. I think that it'll be it won't be so terrible. And um, I mean, it, it's unfortunate that he doesn't understand immigration because um, it would be a lot more smooth. Everything would be a lot more smooth. I mean, the kind of the impact of that executive order. I was thinking about it. The, the wealth of knowledge from researchers and doctors and students who are studying postgrad and PhD programs at top universities from these seven countries. I mean, all of that. These are great immigrants. You don't want them. I mean, Canada would love people like that. Yeah. People who are and, – and these are the people that aren't being – I mean, I heard a story about somebody who was Sudanese who was an expert in Nile water and was going to an academic conference in the Sudan to present and was a keynote there. And he's raising his grandchildren with his wife because his, his daughter had passed away and he couldn't leave the country to go to the conference because he didn't know he would get back in and he couldn't leave the grandchildren with the wife because it was too much for her. So, I mean, 
who are we keeping out and in? Like, yeah. how yeah. can you? That kind of thing, that kind of lack of foresight and understanding. Yeah. Um, yeah. I heard something on the radio the other day that there are more fees that derive from Canadian foreigners coming to Canadian universities um, than there are in cross-border trade on a day. Yeah. Like insane numbers. Yes. Yeah. Billions. Yeah. It's, Billions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's unbelievable. And uh, it's interesting because there are so many different agendas, like you pointed out, um, you know, and uh, this issue is going to be an evolving one. And I thought maybe, you know, as we wrap up our, our interview here a little bit, if you could give us a little bit of uh, your thoughts on, on what the future holds for, for you know, U.S. immigration and, and the direction it's going and, you know, and possibly the implications on Canada, which some of them we've, we've already talked about for sure. But what are your thoughts? What do you think is going to, to happen? Is, is there going to reach a stage where the courts are just going to say, look, President Trump, you can't just do this willy-nilly. You need to do it in a more thought-out way and, and, uh, and engage stakeholders and those kinds of things. Or do you think he's just going to keep ramming things right on through? Well, that's an interesting question because he's got um, the support of Cong Congress to pass laws. I mean, he's got you know majority. He's going to be able to get things through. The way in which he's trying to get things through is very abrupt and sloppy. And that may be that, that the courts tell him, if you want to pass laws, pass them this way. Um, it will slow it down considerably and, you know, maybe he won't be as successful in making things happen. And I I think the jury's out. I'm not sure he's going to change his personality. I'm not sure he's going to listen to the courts. He's not one to acquiesce to what he's supposed to do or, or and doesn't like to be told what to do based <laughs> on everything I've seen. So yeah. I'm not sure he's going to change so much. And I think that this tug of war will continue between the courts and him uh, for, for a while um, unless – Someone finds sufficient grounds to and gets enjoins Congress to initiate impeachment. Huh. And if he doesn't get impeached, then I think that the second branch, the, the court system, is going to be absolutely instrumental in ensuring there's a democracy in the United States. Um, because I, I, I don't see anything with respect to his behavior changing. And I think that the divisiveness in the United States, I don't call it the United States of America, I call it the divided states of America, is is not going to change either. And I, it really, every day is an argument for public opinion, and it's being played out with their facts and alternative facts on CNN and Fox. And the, I mean, whether he lasts four years, the jury's out, but uh, I don't see a big shift in how he's going to play out his agenda. Huh. I don't see that. Well, that's, I, I really appreciate that insight. It's definitely, there's going to be no shortage of, uh, um, you know, news uh, over the next, <laughs> the next little stretch here. And it's going to be keeping uh, U S immigration attorneys extremely busy as well as the court systems. And, you know, it's going to be interesting just to see how it all unfolds and, Obviously, the impact, if any, it, it has on Canadian immigration um, policy itself. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how our prime minister interacts with, with President uh, um, Trump and, and how the decisions that Trump is making down there um, 
you know, have any impact on, on future policy here for us uh, with respect to our immigration in Canada. So, yeah, this is great. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. Now, um, you. you know, this we've covered a lot of, you know, really high 10,000 foot level stuff here. But, um, you know, as a, as a lawyer who practices both U.S. and Canadian immigration and, and uh, you know, has a, you know, quite a breadth of, uh, of experience in a, in a wide variety of immigration areas or areas of practice, if someone wants to reach out to you and they have questions, they're looking to engage your services, what's the best place um, or best method for them to, to track you down? By all means. Um, they can email me, um, heather at Siegel, S-E-G-A-L-I-Law, I-L-A-W dot com. Okay. I'm happy to answer any questions. Mm-hmm. They can call me, uh, 416 Six five six two three four five. They can go to my website, SiegelImmigrationLaw.com. Perfect. And yeah. Okay, I'll put all of those within the show notes uh, for this episode. And um, yeah, once again, thanks so much for taking the time to share some insight for the listeners. Thank you, Mark. That was fun. All right. Thank you. Well, as always, the guests completely knock it out of the park. And Heather was no exception. It was great to have her join me today. And uh, this is one episode that um, I think will will probably be of benefit to a far greater audience even than just those who typically follow the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Um, you know, it's interesting. She brought up something that I had not considered. And that is is just how immigration policy is shaped and um, all of the, you know, the politics behind it. When you think about Canada, we are definitely on the side of a socialist type of, of government. And so everything from our universal, universal health care to all of the other social benefits that we drive and, 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 and that's derived, I should say, um, from taxpayers' dollars. So we pay more taxes and then in return get our social benefits. Well, when you think about that, immigrants are an asset to us. So if we do not have enough people working and paying taxes, then there's not going to be enough revenue to support all of the benefits that come from more of a socialist you know, um, country. And so when you think about the U.S., which is definitely a lot more capitalist, those same things aren't there. So I never really thought of that until Heather had brought that up. And that, you know, the, the, the fact that the U S is, is much more, more, much more capitalist, I guess, um, in, in their, the, their mentality and, and how they approach, uh, everything, even immigration policy is impacted by that. So when you couple that with, you know, this sentiment from, you know, those that are anti-immigration that, you know, all of these, um, you know, these uh, citizens of Mexico are flooding across the border, coming and working illegally in the U.S. Well, if there's this perception that they're not bringing anything to the economy, but just taking away, it's clear to, you know, it's it's clear to see why, you know, there's such divided camps when it comes to immigration policy in the United States. So it's going to be fascinating to watch how this unfolds. As of the release of this podcast, um, 
the uh, the executive order related to to immigration and and the bars for those seven countries, uh, citizens from those seven countries. Um, right now, that's on hold, and so there's you know there's been that uh, that court decision that has suspended that pending the formal hearing, and and so it'll be really interesting to see how it all plays out. I want to thank everyone once again for listening to the podcast today. Um, I'd encourage you once again, as always, to go to iTunes and uh, and rate it. The more uh, rankings and ratings I get there, the greater um, visibility the podcast has to those who might be interested in it. But, you know, I'm just really excited about it. Um, I'm still waiting to share some insight on some changes I'm making with my my practice and I'll leave you hanging for a little bit longer because I'm not quite sure how to talk about this but I am making some changes with my practice and uh, uh, gonna do some things I never thought I would do but um, sometimes uh, just circumstances change and and you have to be adaptable so that's what will happen but one thing that isn't going to change is this Canadian immigration podcast we are closing in on about 3,500 downloads a month and it seems like every month it gets more and more and more. And you know what? That's because of you guys. So I really appreciate those who have shared the podcast, who have commented, who have even reached out to me and um, offered suggestions for topics and speakers. I really appreciate it because at the end of the day, the whole reason for creating this is to provide a safe place where people can go to get information that they can trust on Canadian immigration law. And uh, also to have an opportunity to showcase some of the awesome immigration lawyers that are out there across the country who otherwise may not get um, the recognition that they deserve. And so I want to thank everyone for your uh, faithful downloading and listening of the podcast. If you have any suggestions, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Um, Probably the best way these days is just to contact me through my email address, which is mholthe, M-H-O-L-T-H-E, at holthelaw.com. I've realized that I'm completely overrun with the social media side of things. So the comments and... and, um, notifications that I get through through Twitter and the Facebook pages and even through the Canadian Immigration Podcast website has just become overwhelming. And as I've started to look back over this past year and uh, reviewed the time that I've put into expanding the, the podcast itself to trying to write more and and, uh, and just put more information, helpful, helpful information out there. Well, it has really taken a, a, a chunk out of, <laughs> out of the profitability of my practice because of the time that I had to put in. Um, but, but regardless, I do this because I love it. And, uh, but I have to draw, you know, I have to pull back a little bit on, on the, um, just my responsiveness through social media because it's so easy to get caught up in it. And before I know the day is gone and I haven't done any work that's actually going to keep the lights on in the office. So, um, I think a lot of us are, are along those lines. We, we become so passionate about it that we just want to try and help everyone. And then in the end, we forget that this really is still a business and we have to be able to provide, uh, for our, for our own families. So, um, with a daughter down in, in university at uh, Brigham Young University in Idaho and a son in grade 12 and another son in grade eight and my youngest daughter in, uh, uh, in uh, middle school here, um, I can tell you that the costs are just increasing when it comes to these kids getting older and the activities that they're in. But uh, I wouldn't change one single thing about it. 
All right. I have rambled on long enough. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast, and I wish you all the best as you navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. your